Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. Greeting to the seven churches. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Good afternoon, everyone. And uh, again, happy Father's Day to all the dads out there, every dad here, every dad streaming online. We celebrate you today. Uh, to all for whom Father's Day uh, is maybe an awkward or a more painful holiday, we, we stand with you. Um, I thought it'd be appropriate just with everything going on. I don't know if you guys caught it on the news uh, on, on uh, your way in this afternoon, but I thought it'd be good if we just sort of started our time just praying for that, that actress that got, um, the actress that got stabbed like an hour north from here. What's her name, Reese? Uh, no, with a knife, actually. Uh, <laughs> I thought it'd be appropriate for me to start with my own dad joke. Uh, I was gonna share, actually, uh, a vegetable joke, uh, but it was really, corny. Um, you see, the secret to a good dad joke is that you got to use, use puns. But the thing is, you can't tell a dad joke to a kleptomaniac because they don't understand puns because they, they always take things literally, right? <laughs> That's it, I swear, promise. <laughs> but look, there's something, there's something endearing about the fact that really bad jokes are known as dad jokes, right? There's like this universal understanding that dads are not as funny as they think they are. Looking at you, Danny Lee, not sure where you're at, there you are. <laughs> being, being bad at humor and being good at embarrassing your kids is, is, is kind of this reliable attribute that you can count on for earthly dads. Right? In our text this morning, John, the author of Revelation, he wants to draw our attention to some of the more reliable attributes of Jesus Christ, the things, the attributes about him and his nature and character that we can actually count on. Uh, that's how I'm connecting that. Uh, so there's a reason, there's a reason that he chooses to do that right here as he opens the book of Revelation. I think a lot of people have been, been taught that the way that we interpret Revelation is, that, is, is in a way that sort of breeds fear, right? We, we talk about Revelation in a way that breeds fear or anxiety, where we get obsessed with the end times, and when things in the book are going to occur, occur in actual history, and the big thrust that we walk away with is you got to be ready, could happen at any moment. You got to be ready, and you're just like all oh, worried, like, "Oh, when is it going to happen? Is it just going to be this time? Is it going to be that time?" Uh, and and we learned last week when we started our series is that the greater point of 
this book is that it is apocalyptic. Apocalyptic in the historic sense of the word, which means unveiling, right? So it is an unveiling of what's really going on around us, and we need that. We need that when, when sort of, you know, life has sort of hit the fan, right? When we're anxious, when, when there's things going on in the world around us that we're just trying to make sense of, God wants to unveil what's really going on around us, how he's really at work in, in history, because by unveiling those things, that's where we can find true hope and peace, and something we pointed out last week when, is that when you see the title of the book, The Revelation of Jesus Christ, what I want you to have is that description clear in your mind, that the revelation, the title of the book, we could say is the unveiling, the pulling back of the curtain, the opening up, the breaking through of Jesus Christ. That's another way to look at it. The unveiling, the pulling back of the curtain, the opening up, the breaking through of Jesus Christ. That's why this was written. That's why this book was written, is to unveil the supremacy, the sovereignty, the reign, the power of Christ and his grace, to bring clarity instead of confusion, to bring us comfort instead of fear or anxiety. We also established that the book of Revelation is a letter. It's a letter, and we use this basic Bible principle that tells us that knowing that Revelation is a letter written to a people, we know that this book can't mean to us what it never meant to its original audience, and that it's actually sort of this narcissistic, self-centered twisting of the scriptures when we read ourselves and when we read our culture, and we read the historic events going on around us into the text of the Bible. And what we learned was that these seven churches that John is writing to were churches that are enduring great suffering. And they're wondering if they're going to be okay with everything going on around them, with everything that we're suffering. We established at the end of last week's sermon that this book was written for three primary reasons. Those will be up on the screen, but the book was written for three primary reasons. Number one was to encourage unshakable hope to suffering Christians in the here and now. Number two was to encourage unwavering holiness in the midst of an alluring culture. And lastly, to fuel evangelism here at home and missions abroad. And so John's writing because he wants these people, they need an unshakable hope. They need an unwavering holiness. They need fuel for evangelism and for mission. And we said that to get those, to get those, we need to get a big picture of God. A big picture of God's greatness and a glorious picture of God's gospel. And so that's where we're picking up this morning is by digging into those. And so John begins his letter now by pointing our eyes to the God of the Bible. That's how he wants to start his letter, to encourage these churches. Notice he doesn't start by begin saying, look, here's what's wrong with the world and what needs to change. Not that there's nothing 
to be said about that. But notice, too, that he doesn't say, hey, look, here's what's wrong with you, and you need to change in, in these ways. Not that there's nothing to be said about that. But it's telling that what he starts with, right out the gate, instead of those two things, he draws our attention to the God who is, who's always the same and who needs no change. And so in verses four through eight, John draws our eyes to this vision of the unchanging nature of God. I only have two points for you this afternoon. The first is that we're going to see in this text that John wants us to recognize the Trinitarian foundation of Revelation. The Trinitarian foundation of Revelation. Now, we see this in verse 4. When John, it says that John, writing to the seven churches that are in Asia, he says, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. And what we see in this verse is that by, by coming out of the gate, by talking about grace and peace that comes from the Father and from the Spirit and from Christ, that the entire foundation of the hope and peace that we get from the book of, of Revelation is a Trinitarian work of God, Father, Son, and Spirit. He says grace and peace is what he starts with, this address that we see a lot of times in the New Testament. He says grace and peace, which is what they, they desperately needed, right? We need grace because we are guilty of sin. We need God's undeserved love. That's what grace is. We also need peace, peace that flows from that grace because we were sons of disobedience. So we were rebels up against God. But now through the gospel, now through the grace that's offered to us in Christ, we can have peace, reconciliation with God. And so he's greeting us, John is greeting us in light of that grace and peace. But now through this peace that we have, this grace and peace we have in Jesus, everything changes. And where do these two things come from? John says, grace to, grace to you and peace from, and then he says, from him who is and who was and who is to come. And so first he names God the Father as the one from, or the one who is and was and is to come. Now, it's kind of interesting that he says, Notice the order here, that God the Father is the one who is and who was and is to come. Like, we would kind of expect him to say, like, you know, God is the one who was and who is and is to come. But he starts with, hey, look, this is the God who is and was and is to come. Now, why is that significant? Because the point that he wants to lead with is that this is about right now. This God I'm wanting to draw your attention to, John's saying, this, this God I want you to see, this God I want you to recognize, this God I want you to gaze at, look, he is. He's present. This is about right now. He's not an uninvolved father. He's not a deadbeat dad. He is active right now. He's echoing the words in Exodus 3 when God revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush. 
And God revealed his name as I am that I am, which is grammatically strange, but basically it's God saying, look, I am the God who just is, right? He's like, you want to know who I am, who's speaking to you from this burning bush, who's calling these people out, the God who's delivered you from, from Egypt? He's like, you tell the people, anyone who asks, I'm just the God who is, the great I am. By the way, these five verses that we're looking at have 16 references to Old Testament passages. And it's like John wants to create this impulse in us where when we wonder, man, if, if we're going to be okay in this world, if when we wonder if the world is going to be okay, if we're going to be okay in this world, that we don't look to one another for answers, we don't look to apps or technology or whatever, we don't supremely look to those things, but we first look to the nature and character of God. We look to the scriptures to see what he has revealed about his own nature and character. Now, how many of you have a smartphone? Just quick, quick survey, right? Raise your hands if you have a, a smartphone. Even Mark Dodd has a smartphone. Um, true story. Uh, Mark, my friend, uh, has like been not without a smartphone until like a year and a half ago. Uh, he got his first smartphone. He did the flip phone for like way too long. Um, but now everyone, even Mark, has a smartphone, right? How many of you can honestly say that your smartphones have actually brought you less anxiety to your life rather than more? How many of you can honestly say that? Not a single person can honestly say that their smartphone has brought less anxiety to your life than more. Why is that? My friend... Brett McCracken, he's an elder of a church up in Santa Ana, church plant. He says that while our world has more and more information these days, it has less and less wisdom. I think that's why we have more anxiety and not less. And that's because we have more data, but less clarity. More stimulation, but less Stillness, more to be amused at, but less that we actually find joy in. This is why psychologists believe that the emerging generation, Gen Z, is on the brink of the worst mental health crisis that we've seen, they say, since World War II. We consume too much information, we consume it too fast, and we end up consuming what's not good and spiritual nourishing for our souls. And so John here, at the beginning of his letter, he wants us to draw our attention away from those things and onto the nature and character of God. He wants to create sort of like this, this muscle memory in us where we're returning again and again to the unchanging beauty and glory of God. John wants us to, he, he's saying to us, look there. Hey, look, you guys are suffering. You're feeling down and out. You're feeling like the world's falling apart. Don't look at all these different, look over there. Look at him. Look at God. He also draws our attention to the Spirit. He says, and from the seven spirits 
who are before his throne. Now, this is a reference to the Holy Spirit. <coughs> Excuse me. How do I know that? How do I know that? It's because the Old Testament references um, uh, the Holy Spirit as, as having seven different spirits in Isaiah, and then later on in Revelation, uh, like I think it's chapter four or five, Jesus actually describes himself as having, uh, being filled with the seven spirits of God. And so this is sort of a metaphor. The seven spirits before the throne is a metaphor for the one person of the Holy Spirit. This is the first glimpse that we have in Revelation at sort of this numeric uh, symbols, this symbology, right? You'll notice that Revelation has all kinds of like a strange use of numbers and, and, and counting and things like that. And one of the things that you're going to see is that the number seven is significant. Number seven means fullness. Thank you. It means it's a number of fullness. It's a number of perfection. And so to refer to the Holy Spirit as the seven spirits is, is, is a way of saying that, look, this is the spirit who makes everything perfect and full for Christ and his church. This is the same spirit that was given to Christ throughout his earthly ministry. And it's that same spirit that is given to the church. The Spirit reveals and applies grace and peace. All the works of Christ through his life, death, and resurrection, the Holy Spirit is the one who applies those things to us. And he continues to apply it as we grow in holiness, as we're sanctified until the end of days, until we get to full throttle fullness. The big idea is that grace comes from the Father and the power of the Spirit and through the work of Christ the Son. That leads to our second point. John wants us to recognize the Christ-centeredness of the book of Revelation. He wants us to see right on, just right on the beginning, right on the front end, he wants us to see that's this entire book rises and falls, centers on Christ. It's not a book that is Israel-centered. It's not a book that is rapture-centered. It's not a book that is Mark of the Beast-centered. It's a book that names and describes Jesus, his triumphant victory, and the victory of his church. And so John, right here in verse 5, he begins to describe Jesus, and then, and then he'll break forth in praise. And so let's, let's look at that first part where he begins to name and describe Jesus in verse 5. He says, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. That first word, faithful witness. Faithful witness. In the that phrase there um, is comes from this this Greek word where we get the word martyr from. All right. So somebody who is a witness is like somebody who's a martyr. Somebody who who is willing to stand and say like, Hey, look, I believe this to be true. I, I'm a witness to this. Like I want you to picture like a court case. 
right? That's where this word uh, martyr comes from, this word witness comes from, right? Somebody who gives witness before a court of law. Like Jesus gave witness. He gave witness to the truth about himself, about God, about grace, about the gospel of the kingdom. And to witness, like before a court of law, to witness is on the one hand someone who speaks like against somebody, right? Like sometimes you call a witness to the stand in order to prove that somebody is, is, is guilty. To, to show, that for the witness to show and prove guilt against somebody, to say, hey, look, I was there. And I know that they were guilty. And there's a sense in which the ministry of Jesus kind of does that for us too. Doesn't witness to his sinfulness, but it witnesses to our own. Because in the ministry of Jesus, we see the cross. And what does the cross point us to? The cross shows us how gnarly our sin is. The cross shows us how deep our sin is, how much it needed to be answered for. But then there's also another sense in which you can serve as a witness to contend for somebody, to contend for someone's innocence. And in a deeper sense, Jesus is a witness for us. He's our advocate. He stands on our behalf. The Bible says that he pleads with the father and says, hey, Father, when you look at them, <clears throat> when you look at these children, I want you to see me. <clears throat> he says, they are so united with me that I want you to have the same love, affection, and joy that you have with me and show it to them. He'd lived and died to give witness to that. So what that tells us is that the one who is in complete control is the same one who gave up his life for us. The same one who's in complete control gave up his life for you. He's giving witness to your future glory. <clears throat> and John says, look, pay attention to this Jesus. Gaze at him. He is the faithful witness, and he also describes him as the firstborn of the dead. That's the next phrase, the firstborn of the dead. Now, by using that phrase, he's alluding to an Old Testament passage that we see in like Psalm 89, where it first describes David, and then it describes a son of David, basically saying that this, this firstborn of the dead is going to be fulfilled in David's ultimate descendant, which is Jesus. Now, when it says that Jesus is the firstborn of the dead, does that mean that Jesus was created? No, it doesn't mean that. Because we know that Jesus was, is the uncreated one. He existed from eternity past. But then he put on human flesh in the incarnation so that he could live the life that we could never live. He would live on our behalf. And then he died the death that we deserve to die. And then he rose in, from the grave in triumphant victory over all evil, over all sin, over all death. And when he rose, he would be the first to be born from the dead. The first to be resurrected. His resurrection brought something new. 
His resurrection inaugurated a new world, a new power, a new kingdom. And while we wait for that kingdom to fully consummate, there's still something about that kingdom that has broken into the here and now. There's something about the future that has broken into the present. I want you to think of like, think of it like the dawn of a new day, right? If you're ever up before the sunrise, you know that the rays of sun start to, to, to peak over uh, the Saddleback Mountains into the valley, right? Like they, they come over from that direction, from the east, and, and the rays of light start to, to, to fall in. And so you see the light, the light starts to uh, lighten, right? Like the sky starts to lighten up. And then you, suddenly you see like rays of light start to break through, but it's not quite daytime yet, right? Like right before dawn, it's not quite daytime yet. You can see the rays start to peek into the valley, but it's not daytime yet. But those rays show you that the daytime's coming. It is for sure going to come. You can't stop it. It can't be thwarted. The coming of the day cannot be thwarted. In the same way, Jesus inaugurated the power of God's kingdom. It's not the new heavens and the new earth yet, right? That's why we still experience sin. We still experience pain and loss and death. But there's still something. There's still something very real of the new heavens and the new earth that has broken into the present. He, Jesus, is the firstborn of a new creation. When he rose from the grave, that kingdom broke into our creation. And it's here. The next phrase, it says that he's also the ruler of the kings on earth. He's the ruler of the kings on earth. Elsewhere, it says he's the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. Verse 7 in our text says he's coming with the clouds. We have songs where we sing about that, how Jesus is coming with the, cl- the, cr- the clouds, that saying that he is greater than any other king. That, that use of clouds is a metaphor in the scriptures, in the scriptures that tell us that, that he is transcendent and high above all else, right? Like you can't think of anything higher than the clouds. And so to say that he's coming with the clouds doesn't mean that he's like riding around a little cloud like that Mario character, right? Like he's not like actually, it's not literal. It's a figurative to say that, man, when he's coming with the clouds, to say he's the transcendent one. He's the great one. He's the untouchable one. He is more in control than any of the kings of the earth. There's no limit to his power. I was watching a movie the other day where uh, Gary Oldman plays like this ruthless dictator of a foreign country, like he tends to do, <laughs> um, who's like guilty of these war crimes. And he's on trial by the International Crimes Court. 
And he tries to like flex his power in the court. He tries to proclaim his innocence and say, and say you know, like you've got the wrong guy and like you're gonna let me go. And he, he tries to flex his power in dominion, but they keep responding to him saying, hey, look, you've got no power here. You've got no power in this court. There's a limit to your power when you're bound in chains like he was. Well, if you're familiar with how real estate works, you know that a real estate license is typically tied to the state that you practice in. And so, like, if, if, if somebody is moving uh, somewhere else and, like, locally in California and, then, and, and, and they ask me, like, hey, do you know, like, a good real estate agent? Like, I have, there's a few options of people that I could think of, right? But if I know somebody that is going to move away from here to another state, they're probably not going to ask me uh, for a real estate agent that I would recommend because the ones that I know tend to be around here and, and they would need to speak to somebody who's licensed in that, that, that other state, right? I might know somebody there, but it's more likely that I don't. Again, there's a limit to your power when you're licensed in one state and not another. We all know something about the limits to human power, about human power being limited power. What John wants to draw our attention to in this verse is that there's no limit to the power that Jesus has. He's the ruler of the kings on earth. He comes from the clouds. His rule, his dominion, his sovereignty comes from above and beyond anyone else's. There's limit to human power, but not Jesus. There's no limit to his power. He's not just king over this or that thing. He's not just king over this or that nation. He's the ruler over all kings. He's the king of all kings, the Lord of all lords. There's no jurisdictional boundary outside of his sovereign dominion. So John isn't pointing us to some like washed up, disconnected, dead deity He's pointing to us to the living Christ, the King of kings, the Lord who is Lord over all. When the prophet Daniel in the Old Testament had a vision of Jesus, the Messiah, returning at the end of all time, he saw a vision of the Son of Man coming in the clouds, described as a King of kings. And the Lord says to the prophet through the prophet Daniel. Look, your future is not determined by earthly kings. That's the point of that prophecy in Daniel, is to say, look, regardless of how crazy things look, regardless of how hard things are for you as God's people right now, your future is not determined by earthly kings. John is pointing our attention in the midst of chaos to this vision of Jesus. Jesus, the faithful witness. Jesus, the firstborn from the dead. Jesus, the king over all the other kings. When you have a vision of that Jesus, and when you know that that Jesus fights in your corner, man, that changes how you look at things. That changes how you look at the suffering of this moment. That changes how we think of ourselves, how we think of the world, how we think of the way we should live. And so I want us to close by considering how do we respond to this vision of God? 
How do we respond to this vision of God? And then we'll close. Read verse five and six with me. Verse five and six, it says, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him, speaking of Jesus, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. So here's how we respond to this vision of God. Number one, we respond by recognizing our free identity that we have in Christ. A freed identity that we have in Christ. That you are free. It says right there, uh, he says that, that him, Jesus, who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. You are free in Christ. You're no longer enslaved. You're no longer enslaved by your failures. You're no longer enslaved by your sins. You're not even enslaved by your successes that never seem to measure up enough. The gospel says, no, now in Jesus, now in God's grace, now in his glory, now in his power, my relationship with Christ is the most determining factor in my life. The gospel says that, Jesus says, my grace, my glory, my power is the most determining factor in your life. Your sin is not the most determining factor in your life anymore. Your failures, your doubts, your insecurities, the opinions of others, how ahead you are in the social class system, none of that holds any weight on you. You are determined by the freedom that you have in Christ. Number two, we also respond with empowered courage in the spirit. Where do we see that? Right there in verse six, when he says that Christ made us a kingdom. Man, that will breathe courage into you, right? When you hear Jesus describe the church as a kingdom, as God's kingdom, like we are his kingdom, We've been given spiritual authority in this world. That's what it means to be part of his kingdom. And so we're called as Christians to exercise the power of that kingdom. And so we pray as citizens of God's kingdom the way that we parent our children as as citizens of God's kingdom, recognizing that through us, God's kingdom is advancing. We want the whole church we want King's Cross Church to be invested in spiritual disciplines, to be practicing spiritual authority in our lives and with each other. Did you know that we're not just people under Christ's rule? The Bible says we're also participants in his reign. That's what it says. It says, Jesus loves us, freed us from our sins by his blood, and he made us a kingdom. We participate in Christ's reign. So advancing God's kingdom is what we do. Advancing God's kingdom is what we do as we make disciples in the world and as we raise disciples in our homes. Number three, we respond to this vision of God with joyful access to God. 
We see this in the last phrase there in that verse. It describes us as priests to his God and Father. Priest to his God and Father. We, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are described as a priest of God. That means we have access to God through Jesus. It was a privilege of, that was a privilege, access to God that Old Testament people of God longed for, but only a small number of priests experienced. But now, under this new covenant, anyone who's a follower of Jesus is described as a part of that priesthood. And so that means that you and I, we have access to God every moment of every day. Joyful access. And we not only have access to God, we're also now with that access ambassadors of God. We're serving God and representing him to the ends of the earth by proclaiming him to the peoples of the world, by praying for others and with others, by praying for healing, by caring for others. Like All of those things are kingdom work. And so we enjoy joyful access to God as priests to God the Father. I want you to see how he closes out here in verse six. After describing the nature of Jesus, he says, now to him be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. Also in verse eight, just a couple verses down, he quotes the Lord right there where he says, I am the alpha and the omega. Alpha is the first Greek letter. Omega is the last Greek letter. And so this is the way of the Lord saying, hey, look, I'm the beginning and the end. Everything started with me. Everything's going to end with me. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Look, this is is what I want us to see in the coming weeks and months. What I want to show you is the glory and dominion of Jesus Christ. What I want to show you is the beauty of the one who is and was and is to come. I don't want to show you charts and speculations and opinions and ideas on all these different current events. I want to show you Christ. I want you to see him. I want you to see how beautiful he is, how great he is, how wonderful he is, how he is satisfying he is, and to savor him. Dennis Johnson, a professor out of Westminster Seminary in Escondido, in one of his commentaries in Revelation, he says, I love the way that he puts this. He says, we need to see Jesus. Speaking of the book of Revelation, we need to see Jesus to meet his blazing eyes of heart-searching holiness, to wake up at the trumpet blast of his voice, to respond to his jealous demand for exclusive and passionate loyalty. Shocked and sensible by the impact of his splendor, we need then to hear his words of compassionate comfort, quelling our fears and quaking our hopes. Every congregation, whatever its struggle at its post on the battlefront, needs to fix its eyes on Jesus, 
the pioneer and the perfecter of faith, which is another way of saying the one who began and the one who finishes our faith. You see, the message of Revelation is not that Jesus is coming to rule one day. The message of Revelation is that Jesus Christ rules today. John was writing to first century Christians experiencing suffering, experiencing persecution under Roman government rule. And to them, John says, Jesus holds you. He's with you. He holds you in the palm of his nail-pierced hands. And he's the one who has all authority. He's the one who has all dominion. And today, he is ruling the world for the good of his church and for the glory of his name. I want you to have unshakable hope in that reality. And so John turns their gaze to this Jesus. Man, I want you this afternoon to turn your gaze to this Jesus. I want you as you walk through the book of Revelation, as we walk through it together over the next several months, to to feel his love for you on its pages, to see the victorious Christ, how he loves you, how in your hurt, he loves you. In your pain, he loves you. In, 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 even in your confusion and doubts, he loves you. I want you, as we turn through these pages, to also experience his freedom. Experience true freedom in him. Freedom from sin, leaving our old ways behind. To use the language of this passage to, to let us humbly wail over our sins, to weep over disobedience in our lives, to refuse to be casual with compromise in our lives, to pay attention to Jesus in the midst of all the chaos. God wants to unveil how he is at work in us, through us, around us, and down the corridors of history. His plan will never be thwarted. He already rules. He already reigns. And he's in your corner. The more we become alive to that, that's when things get more alive. That's when things get more exciting. That's when our prayers become more imaginative more powerful to where we're wondering, man, what, what is God up to next? What is God doing? What does he want to do through me? How can we participate in what God is doing in the world? How can you participate in what God is doing in the world and what he's doing on your street and what he's doing in your home and in our church? And so let's seek to see Jesus, to gaze at him, to see how satisfying he is, and to enjoy his beauty now and forevermore. Amen. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, 
please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.